Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Traction Pieces Podcast, episode 453. Thank you for tuning in, guys. And yes, you will have heard, I didn't end the podcast last week after having my favourite director of all time on, Gaspar Noe, because there was more amazing guests to come. And one of them is this week's guest, Jack Loudon. I've been wanting Jack on for a minute. He's been in loads of things I really like. He's in Slow Horses on Apple TV at the moment. Um, he was in fighting with my family, with previous guest Florence Pugh, two-time guest, previous two-time guest Florence Pugh. He was in Calibre with previous, uh, directed by, pre- written and directed by previous guest Matt Palmer. Um, he was in 71. He was in Dunkirk. Um, he was in Small Axe. He's been in just loads of amazing things. So it was an obvious choice. And then I got to see a preview of Benediction, which is his new film where he plays legendary war poet Siegfried Sassoon, which comes out on Friday in c- cinemas. And yeah, it all timed out perfectly. So me and Jack jumped on Zoom. Again, I really I always appreciate getting time, particularly with actors at the moment, because everything stopped for a long time, which means everything is hectic now. Um, and I know that when you're promoting a film... You're normally on to the next project. You're hopefully on to the next project. So I know that Jack's already filming other stuff. He's doing ADR on stuff. And he took the time to jump on with me for a lovely little 50-minute chat. And it was a joy. As you will hear from all the things I've just listed without having them written down in front of me, I've seen loads of his stuff. So it's all, you always know these ones are going to be easy conversations because we can proper jump around and go back and forth and all over the place and that's exactly how it went lovely dude before we get into it we're brought to you as ever by speech records.com that's my record label where you can buy my live edinburgh fringe dvd for example you can buy t-shirts sunglasses all sorts of good stuff you can also go to patreon.com forward slash rubius pip if you want to support that way or you can come over and watch me on twitch where weirdly Jack is Scottish. Weirdly, I've been embraced into the Scottish streaming community by Lemmy, previous guest Lemmy, by people like 1030, Dando, Guzbo, Cade, all these wonderful streamers. There's a really good Scottish streaming community that I seem to have shoehorned myself into. So come and watch that. If you don't know what Twitch is, don't panic. It's just an app. It's a a streaming app. It's live streaming. Simple as that. Everything else will be explained if you go to twitch.tv forward slash Scroobius Pipio or just search Scroobius Pipio on the Twitch app. Anyway, we talk about a lot in this and a lot of the stuff we talk about is available to watch on different st- streaming services. For example, Calibre, Capone is out now on, I think, Now TV and stuff like that. Maybe I think 71 might be on on Netflix, maybe. Um, Small Axe is on iPlayer. But the one I definitely know is Benediction, which is out in cinemas this weekend. So let's get into the chat. Um, it's a wonderful chat, and it's with the one and only Mr. Jack Loudon.
Right, I'm here today with Jack Loudon. How are you, sir? I'm good, I'm good. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. I'm excited to talk to you. I've been wanting to, to talk to you for a bit. Weirdly, you've come up on this podcast numerous times in the past. Oh, really? But before we get into it all, genuinely, how is everything? Are you in? I presume you're in the middle of... The weird thing of this industry is you're normally promoting a project when you're knee-deep in another project and you have to get your head back into that. So... How is the balance of life and existence and art? Um, it's good. It's uh, it's exactly where I want to be, which is busy. Absolutely useless when not busy. So the busier, the better. Um, so and and we are that at the moment, which is a real privilege. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we'll get into it all because we've got a decent amount of time. But you must have ticked a lot of people off of your. Dr- dream list already right because some of the the directors you've worked with and all that kind of thing are just it's like genuine icons and legends it's it's fucking great it's a bit nuts i mean i started in in amateur operatics right which which is like a big thing where i'm from in the scottish borders they're like these societies which is like amdram yeah and they're taking they're taking very seriously you rehearse for about seven months and you do a week of shows Wow. Um, it's brutal. Uh, so I started in that. So I, I essentially categorised myself as a music hall actor. I still feel like a music hall actor. Um, I love that. So to be doing, yeah, to have worked with some of the people that, that you that you mean is is <laughs> it's a bit ridiculous and it's really, really humbling. And I just feel like I'm constantly just get carry on getting away with it, really. That's sort of how it... That's the overarching feeling, getting away with everything. <laughs> I love that feeling, though, man. I, I used to have that in my music days. Every album I'd finish, I'd be like, can't believe I got another one out of me. I didn't, I honestly didn't. And then every acting gig, gig, gig now, as soon as it finishes, you're like, no one noticed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no one tapped me on the shoulder and said, sorry, mate, I think there's been a mistake. Can you Yeah. Can you come over here? Well, I mean, I want to talk about Benediction because I, I loved it. But before we get to that... Just speaking of growing up in the Scottish borders, I adored Calibre. Um, I had ah. Matt Palmer on the podcast to talk about it at the time. He was a friend of a friend, uh, went to film school together in Scotland. And I thought it was amazing because it's kind of a horror, but kind of very much a reality-based horror, if yeah. if that makes sense. And hearing you mention growing up in those kind of outskirts kind of thing... The, the, those places are real right i've i've got family in scotland and have toured about all different areas and there is those times you stop off at a certain t- town or village in lieu of a service station and you're like all right this is this is unusual and the story of caliber is two guys essentially in one of those out in the sticks kind of areas and something goes wrong and they have to kind of deal with that so yeah was there a lot of familiarity there from from your youth i guess uh, <laughs> well you know it's still like, like everything is i guess it's still a it's a heightened version of of what the reality actually is um yeah. i hope i hope that community doesn't exist <laughs> somewhere in scotland um, but i know what you mean there are places in scotland you know it, it's the it's probably the most beautiful country in the world in my opinion but it, the, the, there's all these incredible beautiful beaches and landscapes and forests and glens yeah but there is sometimes you will f- sort of stumble upon uh, th- these these tiny little communities or these tiny little villages that are sort of quite untouched because it's strange Scotland there's a there's the there's the the sort of landed gentry Scotland where you know vast tracts of Scotland are owned 
um, by sort of a couple of couple of blokes with um, some shotguns and some dogs, yeah. uh, and then you have you know, the, the, then you have the sort of incomers yeah. from down south, which who make wonderful successes of places that that have really sort of gone downhill, yeah. and then you have places, particularly in the west of Scotland, the west coast is one of the most beautiful parts of the world, but there's there's it, there's still a lot of um, there's a real dearth of, of, of housing in the west of Scotland. Um, you speak to people up there. There's a dearth of good educate, good teachers and things like that, you know, because the, 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 it needs a sort of big injection of, of cash up there. So the community in Calibre is not too far away from from being real. But I mean, we shot a lot of that down, actually down in the very southwest of Scotland, down in Dumfrieshire, right. in the sort of deepest, darkest Dumfrieshire in a place called Lead Hills. I was going to say, mate, another thing that particularly the English don't realise is how big Scotland is. I always remember in my touring days, we'd go and play in Aberdeen, for example, and we'd cross the Scottish border and kind of think, all right, here we are in Scotland. And then it's like, oh, no, it's another five hours <laughs> and then, <Yeah. laughs> until you're up in Aberdeen. It's, and then, yeah, you, from the, the, the fast southwest, the, the corners it stretches off to and things like that, there's yeah some hidden places. The southwest is, is is quite an incredible part. It's it sort of because um, everybody associates the sort of Gaelic culture, the speaking of Gaelic, the sort of old Alba Scotland with the Highlands, yeah. but the southwest is one of, was one of the sort of last real bastions of that culture, and it's, so it's a remarkable place. And we, like I said, we shot in a place called Lead Hills, which is that I think claims to be the highest village in Scotland, if not the UK, and it's a fascinating place. We got snowed in there whilst we were shooting. Really, really an incredible place, and and the barn that 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 I eventually get dragged to with Martin McCann was in the middle of nowhere in, in yeah. Dumfries, and we shot that film in like November. It was fucking freezing. It was terrifying. The barn that we shot in, yeah. And we, I remember, I saw crowded around somebody's iPhone because I think Scotland were trying to get <laughs> trying to qualify for either the Euros or the World Cup. Right. And I remember us fucking freezing stood warming ourselves up through sort of hope. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> watching this tiny screen, but uh, it was a mad experience. That I mean, that how is that? Because I think I've definitely spoken to people like Tom Hardy about it, who we'll get onto as as well because of other projects. And and Florence Pugh, in fact, spoke about when doing Lady Macbeth, kind of the advantage in a way as an actor of having certain parts of the acting taken care of for you. For example, it genuinely being fucking freezing and uncomfortable it kind of right that part of it i don't have to act i don't have to, have to pretend anymore i can focus on on this bit of character so is is that handy in a way in hindsight that you're like oh it really was uncomfortable and unpleasant so oh yeah it's it's so handy and it's it's actually quite lovely because as an actor you, you very rarely get to you know you're quite cosseted as an actor and you're quite yeah. protected and yep. i always love coming home or back to whatever hotel or digs that they've put us in and feeling weather-beaten and yeah. ach aching. I mean, man, when I did... Um, I miss doing those films. I miss doing films where you're outside all the time. I, I haven't done one for a while, but I remember doing 71. Yeah. Uh, and we had to do the... Uh, there was about a two-week military training, scrambling through, I think it was in Derbyshire, or yeah. somewhere like that. I mean, we had we were crawling. We did this shot over and over again because Jan wanted to do it again and again. I was going to say, speaking of legends, future legend there, Jan, his work with Top Boy seventy one was astounding. Yeah, dude's just building and building that that legacy. 
he was remarkable to work with, but we were sort of scrambling through, lying on our bellies in 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 this stream, crawling crawling on our front again and again. And I was I was only about twenty three when I did that. And of course, at that point, you're like, yeah, I'll do anything, I'll do it, you know. And I, I sort of miss doing all those films with big big casts, yeah. and and you get a real camaraderie with with some of them. It's it's great. I love that. Well, I mean, continuing on, I mean, I just mentioning. Seventy-one there, you've done a fair few kind of war-based films, and Benediction is set in war times, but isn't necessarily a war film as such. Seventy-one, a prime example, but but Dunkirk again. I'm going to reel off the legends. Working with Nolan on Dunkirk, how was that? Because I because of 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 some friends who were in it, I, I came along to the premiere of that. Mm. And just the experience of it, the overwhelming... Everyone's talked about the sound and the visuals and all that. It was such a powerful cinematic experience. But then when so much of it is overwhelming sound, I always wonder how much of that came across on the day, on the shoots, in the sets, because it might not be, you know, it might be added after and built up certainly in the way they spread it and that. So, yeah, how was that to work on? Was it as intense as it looked on screen or was that something that you had to act unlike in, in calibre, if you know what I mean? Well, no, that, that Dunkirk's probably the best example I've got of, of where not a lot of acting was required yeah. because, I mean, <laughs> I was in the air in, in, a, in a Spitfire flying tip to tip with two other Spitfires over the actual channel. Wow. Um, wow. With, a cam- with an IMAX camera. Uh, strapped to one wing with the fuel emptied out of that wing so that the the weight balanced. And I had a pilot, this insane American stunt pilot who was in the cockpit behind me. So it was a sort of modified plane. And all the the controls in the front cockpit were disabled, thank fuck. And so I could pull about and press buttons, you know, to my heart's content. Did you you feel like when you give a baby, like a fake steering wheel and that, (laughs) in the front seat, you've got the grown-up hidden behind you and you're kind of going... That's what we were doing. Honking the horn. (laughs) You know, we were doing... I remember when we would literally get up, we were flying from an, uh, an airstrip in northern France... We would go up the three Spitfires. We would go up and fly around and shoot. I think we had about eight minutes or something like that on the IMAX reel. Come down, take it out. Chris would plug in his like iPad thing that he watches it on, watch it all back, tell us what he wanted, and we'd go back up. And we did it for a day. And I, it was just one of those moments. But it's incredible because as an actor, you you get given these incredible opportunities that people would pay thousands to do. Yeah. But. Ultimately, at the end of the day, there's always majority of it. You're thinking, "Fuck, am I doing? Am I doing good acting? Wait, am I, what am I doing with my eyes?" Yes. You know, <laughs> so yes. like you're sort of not experiencing it at the same time. But um, you know that no, that that film that was very. If uh, when I'm on the boat and I'm watching Hardy in the air, yeah, you know, most of that there's just a real Spitfire in the air, and so fucking very little acting's required. I'm just looking at a Spitfire. <laughs> I love it. Well, kind of speaking of extremes, then, and mentioning Hardy. Hardy and Josh Trank are pals of mine, and when they were making Capone, which was Fonzo f- for a long time, yeah, I know it was a bonkers one from what I could see, from what I could hear. Um, how was that to uh, to work on? Because your character, in many ways, is holding the sanity in all the madness. Uh, did that feel like that was y- y- your job as an actor as well to kind of <laughs> hold the sanity as Tom's kind of s- s- soiling himself in a fat suit and Josh is running around like a maniac. Well, yeah, 
That well, that that was the hard thing. The to, the first thing I had to shoot on that was the. It's like a I don't know. It's like an eight or nine page scene, opposite yeah. Tom, and it's basically I just talk, and Tom the fucker just gets to make noises. Just grunt and grunt. I've got to do all of this in a Boston <laughs> accent, and so we did that on the first my first day, and so I was I was shitting myself. Yeah. Um, he very kindly had asked me to be in it, yeah. so which I already, already felt like a huge responsibility um, after Dunkirk, but um, it was just amazing to watch him get away with the things he gets away with in terms of the cho- the, the, the big choices that he can make. And, and, and I still adore him as the the other brother in the Cray, Cray twin yeah, film, yeah. As, Ron, as Ronnie. I yeah. think you, you, to, to, to have the balls to go for it in that way is, is one thing, but then to have the skill to play it in such a committed fashion is the bit that very few people can do, and he can do it. I've said a few times, like one of the things that drew me into acting was seeing people like Tom, Christian Bale's an example of this, actors who can make the most ridiculous voice choice and make it believable and completely real. Because the reality is you will meet people who, if someone just played that in a, in a show, you'd be like, that's not that's not realistic. It's like, no, it is. And Tom is a, a master of that, of making these insane choices, but doing it with such conviction and believability that you're like... like of the take is always the example I go for because his character in this show, The Take, is so oh, all right, like, like so whiny and weird, but he's terrifying. Yeah, I know people as well. Like you know, I, I know that people sort of can take the piss out of that quite a lot when it yeah. comes to him with the choices that he makes. But n- none of them played those characters. Yeah. You know, he, yeah. he 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 always wins in my book because he yeah. plays them. Nobody else gets to do it. Tom does it. You know, and I think. Um, it's 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 just incredible what what he and he pushes right to the extremes and you know it, it, as a young actor a younger actor when I was on that set it was a real education to see what 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 you can be capable of and not always to play it safe. It's interesting hearing you say that because I did a show called T- a, a, a Taboo with Tom and I was oh, astounded yeah. how much he was willing to share and help me learn and I remember talking to him. And him saying he's got to that point because of in Revenant, because he was saying Leo at that point just was just would give him so much, would teach him so much, and be so warm. So, is that something that you're kind of taking forward as well as you're becoming number one, number two, number three on the call sheet as such? That it's important that it's your job. Not only obviously it's hugely important to put in the performance to do the work, but it's also I think a job that people don't realise is often equally important is it's your job to s- set the tone, to let people know what kind of s- set it is and how and how it's going to be in this period. Yeah, the, the, the only thing that you need to give an actor and the only important thing that you need to give an actor is confidence mm. because they're not a light, uh, they're not a camera, they're not a piece of machinery, all right? They, they, they ha- they're a human being and in, a, in an incredibly technical arena to then suddenly you put... A, a pretty, you know, a vulnerable human being in the middle, and you ask yeah. of them to go to places that you've probably never been to, and repeatedly, re- repeatedly. return to those places it, it, exactly. over and over again. The only way you can do that is by giving them confidence. The worst thing you can do is give them the complete opposite. Um, and I've worked with directors that do that. You just watch actors melt, and it's yeah. um, it's a sort of self-destruct button that a lot of directors press. 
So the, the greatest thing you can give is confidence. And Tom gave me a lot of confidence on Dunkirk and then on on on, on Capone. And so now, I mean, I mean, I'm still only 31. I still feel like I'm only sort of still cracking into the film industry. But if I work with a young a young actor who who I think is fantastic, I'll take the piss out of them because they don't they don't need it. Their arse is kissed. Because, yeah. You know, and I'll take the piss out of them. And it's, and it, it, I, I, cause I love my favorite thing about this industry is watching good actors. It's yeah. my, it's a sport. Same. I just love it. It's the yeah. only thing I, I truly love about this industry is brilliant actors because it's the magical, mythical bit that nobody can quantify or teach. I've, I've, I've told this story a, a ton of times, but the reason my character's role grew into Boo was because I was asking always to just just come and watch. If they wrapped me, I'd be like, is it right if I just hang about? Because I've got Tom Hardy and Stephen Gr- Graham and, and all these amazing... <laughs> Tom Hollander, all these amazing people. Oh, God. And then because of how TV sometimes works, they realise that they're missing someone or need someone in the background here. They'd be like, oh, there's Pip in his, his full kit, just sitting there on the <laughs> sideline, just going like, all right, lads. But yeah, exactly that is because it was that I never thought I'd get to witness that. Fuck to be yeah. involved in it part. That's mind blowing. But just to witness it, it's as you say, it's as it's it's such a spectator sport in that way, just to watch and go, wow. It's it's the best thing. Look at how this works. They should sell tickets for it. You yeah. should you should be able to do that. They should sell like VIP ticket experiences. Yeah. You know, and it fucking make a fortune. It'd get any film made they get the funding for a film like that. If yeah. you could fucking sell like tickets to come on yeah. set. It's it's the best. I did it on slow horses. I'd go yeah. and watch Gary and Kristen. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, I'm, go- I, I, I'm, I'm here. Right? I'd drive myself and I'd get in there before before I'd need to be there and I would just walk on set and sit there and watch the two of them. It blows my mind that people s- spend their times in hotel rooms and getting yeah. room service when you're like, I'd rather just hang out here. I'll, I'll be quiet. I promise I won't get in anyone's way. I'm not going to be a dick, but just, just let totally me watch agree. this, man. Yeah, t- totally agree. So, 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 how was that? On again, Slow Horses is another one that's I've just adored recently. I won't name it. There was another series on Apple TV that everyone was raving about. I put it on and it didn't click initially. It's just my mind space. The reason I'm not naming it is because it, it clearly is amazing, and I'll get around yeah. to watching it because it wasn't clicking. I, I slung on Slow Horses because of Gary and yourself and Olivia. And I smashed through it in a couple of days. I thought it was so enjoyable and watchable. How was that to be part of? Because it is, like, particularly in, in British TV, we've done a lot of crime and police drama. It's something that we do a lot. So to find an original way to do it is really rare. And it does feel like that because it is kind of billed as almost the outcasts of MI5 or whatever. But then it's not played in a... It's not played necessarily for laughs. Obviously, Oldman can bring laughs whenever he wants to with that character, but it's not necessarily played as a slapstick thing. So, yeah, how was that? Or was that to be part of? I mean, it, it, you know, when I first read it, I was like, oh man, like this the 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 cynicism in yeah. all of the characters, the sort of self interest in all of the characters. I was like, yeah. I fucking love this. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, please, yeah. can I be part of this? So. To get it was was just incredible, and obviously the main reason everybody wanted to be in it was because of Gary, and because you know Gary's never done long form TV, you know, and mm. and um, it kind of felt like the part that he'd earned, he'd earned this part, and I knew that I was the sort of straight man, so to speak, stood next to him. Yeah. I'm sort of the audience. That's just been another education, another complete education, getting to watch that guy work. 
Am I right yeah. in saying it's a rare situation of one director for the whole series? Because I think that's happening a bit more now, but particularly in uh, when I've worked on American shows, a different director every episode. And I think there really is something in having one person's vision throughout this so effectively. As you say, for Gary, he's essentially making a long film. <laughs> like, like, do you know what I mean? It's, it's not TV as such. It's... It's it's one long project. Yeah, they, they, it, it does make a massive difference. It, it it makes a massive difference, particularly, you know, in something where, like you know, you're jumping about so much. So mm. to have as much consistency as you can in other places yes. is so important. I mean, I'm doing something at the moment, which is a six-parter, and it has two different directors, and both directors are lovely and fantastic. But the danger is when you have another director is that... It, it, you sort of go, if with another director, we'll coax something different out of you. And that sounds like a brilliant idea, right? But yeah. you might coax something out with this director and you've shot two episodes already and you finally go, oh, fuck, that's what I should have been doing with the character. Yeah. And you go, oh, bollocks. So it's almost a sort of double-edged sword. Yeah. yeah. Because a direct, that's how important they are, obviously. But the thing I'm doing at the moment, I'm like, it's a big, big character and I'm like... It, you know, there's just different opportunities and different avenues with this character presenting themselves every day. So if if you added another two directors to that, I would probably be an absolute mess. Uh, the, yeah. the first ever bit of TV I did, it was really awkward because the guy in, in the scene with me got into an argument with the director and I thought he was being <laughs> unreasonable. And it wasn't until we all took a pause, he kind of said, look, I'm five episodes into this character. I know that in this moment, it's the wrong choice. With all the respect in the world to this director, but this is their first episode. I know what's right for my character. And it was a really interesting one, because I said, at first, I was like, <laughs> I shouldn't have, I'm a newbie. I took him aside and I said, look, let's just do one take of what he wants and then all this. And then it was like, no, look, look, here's why. And I was like, oh, fuck, I hadn't, yeah. hadn't thought of that. But I know we've got Piers and Olivia on mute and we need to talk about benediction i keep going off on tangents so i don't want them pulling their hair out um <laughs> you're playing legendary war poet siegfried sassoon how do you approach a role like this like when it's a real person as such well i've i've, I've, play, I've played quite a few real people already yeah. and um i i strangely never find it i don't find it daunting to play yeah. real people even if they're really well-known people because I just sort of think, as soon as it's on a script, as soon as it's on paper, you commit it to paper. Like, it, they, they, to me, they don't exist. Yeah. The real person doesn't exist. I never did. So the, only the person on the, on the page exists. So I'm always very careful to go about it in that way. If I'm putting on my shoes as Siegfried Sassoon, I'm just a guy putting on his shoes, and then someone comes in and calls me Siegfried Sassoon. I don't think, how would Siegfried Sassoon put on his shoes? Yeah, yeah. You know, because then you end up with... A very sort of you don't end up with a human being first so that is all I ever really think about when I'm doing it but the great joy of playing real people like him like Sassoon is that I get to spend a couple of months before delving into all of this stuff that I would never have read before it and what a fucking life that man had yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely insane and it unfolds beautifully I was, I was thinking as well and again it all depends on your approach and process some people will, you know, research the real person. Others will put faith in the script and the fact that the person who's written the script has done their research and presented what's accurate. But it seemed exciting to me, just from an artistic point of view, 
to have the poetry as a resource because again it's not biographies it's not notes in history books it's something they've genuinely poured out that might tell you more about them than people they knew if you know what i mean did you delve into his work a lot and did you find that illuminating for for finding the the character yeah it's sort of i I did a i did a a small film years ago uh, uh, about morrissey and Mm. the the whole point of the film was to see where his lyrics came from yeah and so obviously i'd listened to all all of the songs all the smith songs before it um, but then again, went at the script just thinking about an awkward teenager in Manchester in that music scene. That's all I was thinking about playing. Yeah. Um, but it was just really moving to sort of find out through the process of the film where these incredible lyrics came from. And like the same with Sassoon, um, the things that that man had seen in those trenches. And like, again, the cynicism that it bred in him and the humour that he had in his diaries, his war diaries, incredible. Mm. His fucking war diaries. Uh, how he talks about, like, his just severe jealousy that the man had of even, like, colleagues winning medals for gallantry. And he wanted one. I was going to say, that the, what comes across in, in, in the film and in your performance is, is the destructiveness of his humour, the self-destructiveness of his humour, yeah, the kind yeah. of need to go, this is a perfectly nice situation, <laughs> I'm going to make a joke to ruin it or to make it uncomfortable. Or, And it's really, it's a really interesting kind of part of him, it seems, as a, as a person. Yeah, he's definitely got a sort of inner Larry David. Yeah. He's, you know, he, he, <laughs> yeah. when he's in social situations and he... Yeah. It would be easy to walk away now, but instead I've got <laughs> yeah, something no. to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but he also has to deal with the fact that he's he was quite a reserved person in many ways and would walk away from situations wishing he'd said things. Mm. Um, and he's just a complete, complete hypocrite, which is the other wonderful thing about him. Yeah. I also, I, I, I think there's something beautiful about witnessing artists in the most unartistic of times. And it's why Siegfried Sassine's work is so powerful and why just as a film, I find it fascinating because this is war times. These are war people. He's surrounded by generals and all sorts of other stuff, yet he is a poet. He is an artist above above all. He, you know, even the way he presents himself constantly, it's, it's, it's wanting to be that clear artist in, yeah, in the most unartistic of times. To, 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 be, a, to be a man that, that fought in the First World War, won a medal for gallantry, was a, considered, one of, considered a brilliant soldier, who then turned around and made a very public statement saying that the war was bullshit mm. and it was stupid. Risk court-martial and being shot, ultimately. Then he wrote some of the greatest poetry that's ever been written. And then, you know, then he fucking converted to Catholicism and he lived way into like the 1960s, racked with the guilt of being one of the few great war poets that actually survived. Mm. Um, and he was gay at a time where, you know, you could go to jail for three years yeah. for being gay. You know, and he hung about... Even with, if you're a war hero, regardless of who, yeah. Oh yeah, the worst thing you could possibly do. And he yeah. hung about with fucking everybody from Ivor Novello to Lawrence of Arabia. Like, <laughs> yeah. like, what a boring bunch of arseholes we are now. Yeah. You know? Minus the war bit. I, you know, no one wants to do that, but the, even the, the company that he kept, fuck yeah. me. <laughs> and again, it, but his absolute disdain and lack of appreciation for that, for that fact. <laughs> like when Ivan Novello rocks up in the film, his absolute, oh, fucking hell. Here's <laughs> Ivan Novello on the piano again. 
Yeah, they stand this. Rain it in, lad, kind of yeah. thing. You're like, this, and I, I love that about the film because it could have been shot as a, like you, you get a lot of biopics that do really, and rightfully so, glorify these moments that Elton John was in the room with this person and things like that. It's beautiful, but I love in this that there's a real... Because the reality of it is, when Ivan Novello is isn't quite Ivan Novello yet, you would be like, "Oh fucking hell, we're just <laughs> we're just trying to hang out," and he's on the bloody piano again, having a having a scene. Yeah. And then you have the brilliant things like, you know, I, lo- I love in 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 biographies, think th- films like this is where they do things that you just wouldn't expect. But there's a scene where Siegfried Sassoon and Wilfred Owen tangle. Yeah, they're practicing the tangle. Yeah, you know, and it's you. You could just have that they just sort of met and had this sort of, you know, sort of inadvertent romance that never quite blossomed and yeah. and whatever. But like he throws little bits in like that, and I yeah. just that those are the bits that you love playing as an actor. I, I love it. Well, I mean, speaking of history and moments, I guess, and the coming together of of characters, good and bad. I want to talk a little bit about small acts because another one. Mm. Dave McQueen, a living legend, mm. one of the greats, and his small act series, it felt like him needing to tell these stories and address these stories that maybe hadn't been told. And Mangrove was the f- the first of these. So I, I went in incredibly excited because I'm a fan of Steve anyway and seeing that he's doing kind of TV, but it's a load of standalone smaller things. How was it to be part of a story like that because it is a story of importance mm-hmm. of strength but it's not necessarily a story of pride particularly as a british person in any way it's a story of shame really but it's the delicateness with which he tells that yeah i thought it was astounding how was that to be part of and what was your thought process going in well steve steve, steve mcqueen's my favorite working director yeah. i think he's the, i think he's the best Completely. He's, be- he's the best these islands have ever produced. So to get to work with him was just, like you said at the beginning, a complete bucket list. And if I didn't do anything else after this podcast, I wouldn't care because I'd I'd work with him. And I'd, um, but the in terms of the stories that were told in that sort of in that in that community in in specifically sort of West London, coming from where I came from, you know, I obviously I didn't know enough about it. And then to find out that, you know, they were represented, the Mangrove Nine were represented by a Scottish guy called Ian MacDonald. QC was, was, was a really, a really lovely thing. Um, yeah. so it was a, it was a complete honor to play that man and who sadly died shortly after the filming of it. Um, so oh, I never wow. met him, but to work with Steve, I mean, the, the, the scenes in the courtroom where I got to stand up and make all these lovely speeches that Ian made, you know, and, and have Steve just simply say things like, all right, you got one more. Go and make sure you enjoy it. That's directing. Love it. Like we said earlier about giving confidence. That's directing. Didn't come in, say, you know, on this line, on that beat or whatever, right? Obviously, it's wonderful when you have worked with any director that has confidence in you, but that's his direction, you know? Yeah. And it's a very simple direction. And I did. I, I remember doing the last take of his big speech and I... Literally just went at it, thinking I've got this is the last time I'm going to do this, and so I better enjoy it. And, and and so that sort of sums him up, you know. And you'd be done sometimes on a Steve on Steve's stuff at like three o'clock in the afternoon because when he knows he's got it, he's got it. Uh, you know, he shoots so quick. He, he, it was just a complete honour to watch him and to watch him tell those stories in particular, which are very close to home for him. Yeah. You know, any time I drive now 
across the uh, the Westway out of London towards like Heathrow or whatever. Mm. I now think of all of those stories. I think yeah. of those stories. I think of those people that I didn't necessarily know enough about. So any time I see the Westway, if I'm underneath it, if I'm on top of it, I think about it. And um, so uh, it more than did its job. It really did. I, l- I love that. And it's such a beautiful bit of direction. I always, a lot of mates of mine who've been in the industry a, a, a lot longer always a laugh at me because I mentioned a lot, I really enjoy self-tapes. And part of that is I might not get to do this ever again. Yeah. So I get to just play with a character. Again, knowing how mad the odds are in the industry it's like i'm not going into it thinking i need to win this i'm going into it going i've enjoyed finding this character and this is possibly the last time i'm going to get to be him so yeah let's have some fun with it and enjoy it i do a little thing it's a bit it's a bit camp and a bit weird but and i did it on benediction with sassoon i remember the last scene that i shot which was me sat in a chair looking at my wife that i married after she's given birth and it was the very last thing i was going to shoot and I'd spent a long time with Sassoon because of Covid and the pandemic the film you know took ages to happen and I muttered under my breath before the last take and I knew it was the last take and I muttered under my breath um, see you later Siggy that was that, that, I, I muttered it and, that, it. and I and, and I do that every now and again on things and it's just for me just for me yeah. just for me I don't do it for anyone I mutter it as quiet as I can and I just say goodbye to, to the person that I got to be for a bit and um, yeah I'll never forget that on that I love it. How How is it when a character that you didn't know about, like the lawyer in Mangrove, how is it when a character like that comes to your attention? Because, again, I think obviously you're, as we touched on, you've done loads of accents, you're amazing at accents, it's perfectly comfortable. But I spoke to, to Benedict Wong a short while ago about when he found out that there was this character Wong in Doctor Strange and all this, and it felt like a... I didn't know this person existed. Obviously, that person doesn't exist. But in your case, if this was a real person who you weren't aware of, and suddenly, like, it sounds grand to say I was born to play this, but there are these moments where you go, this is perfect. This is me. I, I didn't know yeah. this person existed, and now I need to I need to play them. I need to represent them. How is that, particularly well, if it's a Steve McQueen project? Well, it's great. I, we did the, I remember we did a table read-through for, for, for some of, of Mangrove, with, and Steve was there, and... Ian MacDonald, the character that I played, he actually had a sort of English accent. He'd spent a long time yeah. down in England. And, and I said to Steve before we started the read-through, I said, um, so do you want me to do you want me to do an English accent? And he said, um, would you feel better doing your own? And I went, yeah, always. And he said, just do that then. And it was as quick as that. It was just as quick as that. Even though you're playing a real person, even that, the, he, he knows that, that an actor is, in, an, in my opinion, is always going to be better um, the more comfortable they feel. So it's one less thing to think about. It's what we touched yeah. upon at the start. If you're g- g- genuinely cold and shivering, it's, w- it's one last thing to think about. Yeah, um, yeah. And he just he just gave me instant permission, and and the job was twice as easy as as as, as it could have been because of that. And I I, I felt a lot closer to him. And no, it was a, a, a really lovely thing to for him to let me do that. I love it. Well, another film that I adored was Fighting With My Family and I had previous two-time guest Florence Pugh on and she spoke so highly of you and of the experience in general. How was that to work on learning the wrestling, becoming one of the infamous Knight family? I'm a big, I'm a wrestling fan anyway. Having a scene (laughs) with The Rock, um, just turning up and doing his thing kind of thing. How was all that as as an experience? Because it felt like it was quite a roller coaster, but 
a hell of an enjoyable one. Oh, I, did, I mean, the, the, there was not a lot to dislike on that project. And yeah. again, I got to work with a hero of mine, Steve Merchant. Stephen Merchant, obviously. You know, who, yeah. who's, who's literally shaped him and Gervais, literally shaped how I see comedy. Yeah. Conversations that I have in a pub are quite normally just office quotes back and forth. Yeah. So to work with him was incredible. But the Night family. To work with the Og Monster. To work with, yeah, to work with the Ogmont, exactly. But to go out, we went out to Norwich one night, we went to, to the WAW show yeah. in Norwich, and it was one of the best nights out I've ever had is watching yeah. that show. They are unbelievable, that family. So yeah. to play, and to get the honour to play Zach was, um, he's a remarkable human being, and he's still there yeah. working, his, working his arse off for that community. Um, and uh, still with dreams of, of, of becoming a big-time wrestler. And he's I've, I've keep up to date with him. He's, like, cut tons of weight. He's been training his arse off. He looks incredible. He's a real hero, that boy. Really is. Yeah. And how was, again, the scene that was perfect in the trailer was this brief interaction with The Rock. <laughs> how was that? Because he's someone who... It should have been so obvious he was going to transfer over to film because just the natural charisma, obviously work ethic, everything else, but the natural charisma of the guy is through the roof and he's obviously quite literally larger than life. So, yeah, how was that? Because your characters had to act kind of in awe. Was that, again, another one that didn't take a lot of acting? Because exactly l- that. look at him. <laughs> the, he He's the only person I've tr- only... Maybe one other, when I met James McAvoy, other than meeting James McAvoy, he's the only person that I've ever been properly starstruck meeting because he like he just has this aura. The man physically glows as well. He's that (laughs) fucking healthy. He physically (laughs) glows. And And I'd done months and months of CrossFit training to put on any kind of weight and muscle to play Zach because the real, because Zach was like 17 stone. I was like, 12 stone and I'd worked my fucking arse off and then walked into this scene with a rock who's these arms that I'd spent months building were the same size as his calves and I was like ah thanks but no since four in the gym yeah yeah yeah. three meals already (laughs) when he when he was talking to us during before the scene he was just talking to us and he didn't even break eye contact and just like a little Tupperware box full of chicken came under his chin and he just started eating it someone just handed him some chicken That's what you need. I did a film um, with a guy called Martin Ford, and he's like known as being one of these, this huge bodybuilder guy. Right, right. And that was exactly it. He'd turn up on set every day with numerous Tupperware boxes because it's a full time job to be that big, to feed yeah. to, to feed your body to be that big. He oh, has yeah. to get up at five. Even if he isn't exercising, he needs to be getting up to be putting chicken and yeah. broccoli and yeah. whatnot into into that huge frame. Yeah, it's astounding. Well, I'll start to wrap things up by kind of asking what's ahead. Slow Horses was amazing. It's listed as having a second season. Has that been confirmed and stuff? Again, on IMDb, it's just like, it's been shot. Yeah, we shot it. We shot it straight after. So that is, um, I'm doing ADR on it tomorrow. Um, Fantastic. That's going to come out, I think it's roughly in the autumn sometime. Um shooting a thing to the BBC at the moment called The Gold, which is just incredible fun with uh, Sean Harris and Dominic Cooper and this yeah. great, great, great people. Uh, and How's uh, Sean Harris to... Or how is it to be on a project with Sean Harris? Because he feels like one that 
actors are aware. Like actors put Sean Harris up here. He, he you know, he, he's he's been in some huge things, but just the respect is above the box office even with yeah. him. I think. I mean, I, I worked with him first in '71. He was in '71. I yes. didn't actually do any scenes with Sean, but I was just aware of this guy, and, yeah. and so in this, I did. I we did a scene with him about two, three weeks ago, um, and again, just <laughs> he's just this incredible being. So yeah. um, it's quite interesting to watch. But we're fi- I'll finish that in in a, in a couple of weeks' time, and then I'm doing a project in Orkney that I'm producing called The Outrun. Uh, right. So we start turning over on that in July. We've shot a pre-shoot for it uh, a couple of weeks ago, and so we're really excited about that, yeah. That sounds amazing. Well, I appreciate you taking the time, and as said, I've been enjoying so much of your stuff over the years, so I'm pleased that we got a chance to sit down and have a bit of a chat. Yeah, man, yeah, honour. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was episode... What number did I say it was? 453 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with Mr Jack Loudon. This is your first time tuning in. Go and check out the Florence Pugh episode, the Matt Palmer episode. Any of We've had loads of great guests on in the past. I mentioned the Benedict Wong episode recently. Really great episode, that. It was his... His first ever podcast, it turns out, and he was wonderful. So, yeah, plenty to go and delve into in the back catalogue. And there's going to be plenty to delve into in the forward catalogue. Just made that up. That's a new thing now, the forward catalogue. I mean, I still think not really anyone is listening to this part at the end anyway. Every now and then I say that and people tweet me or Instagram me to say that they were listening. But I don't know. I think I think they might be bots I don't know if anyone's really listening, but yeah, the Forward catalogue is looking fantastic. I've been recording some astounding podcasts of late. Do I tell you any of them? Let's give you. I never normally give you the heads up on who's to come, but we got a little episode with Tim Key returning. Tim Key's a previous guest. He's back. I had a chat with Self Esteem. I had a chat with Jordan Stevens. Who else did I have a chat with? Loads of people. <laughs> I've got tons of them recorded and they've been great. So, I mean, if you're not already subscribing, you're making a mistake. So get that subscription button hit. Follow me on the socials. I post about them all there. I'll be on the socials going, hey, have a listen to this one. In fact, the main thing I post is podcast stuff there. So, and Twitch, I guess. But um, yeah, this is turning to one of the uh, the rambly ones. These happen every now and then. Today, I've recorded two podcasts and then I decided to go straight in and record the intro and outro for this podcast. And that means I'm in a bit of a a bit of a, a surreal, hazy, rambling stage. I've not had my lunch. I did have lunch, but it was a small lunch. All right? I did a big workout, had a small lunch. It's not wise. As you will have heard from the chat you've just l- listened to, if you're doing a lot of workouts, like me and The Rock, then you need to be having your food regularly. You need food to appear just under your nose, out of nowhere, in a very exciting manner. And that hasn't happened today, but I'm going to go and correct that. So I will say to all of you, make sure you're eating, make sure you're drinking, make sure you're looking after yourselves, guys. 
because there's more podcasts to come. And if you don't look after yourselves, I'm going to have no one to listen to them and I'm not going to be happy about that. So keep yourselves alive, if only so that I continue to have you as a glorious listener. Thank you for tuning in, guys. I'll be back next week. And till then, stay safe, stay sane, stay fed and stay watered. Ta-ta.